through 10. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. And the title of this message is, Should We Keep Doing This? Should We Keep Doing This? Speaking about gathering together, what we're doing this morning. Should we really keep doing this? Is it really worthwhile? Is this how the Lord would have us spend our time in such dire days as these? That was a question that the Hebrew Christians were asking because they were living in very difficult times. You'll remember that they were being threatened for their faith in Jesus Christ and they were being rejected by society and they were suffering personal loss and they were asking the question, should we keep doing this? Should we keep gathering as Christians in such a time of difficulty when the world and our immediate situation doesn't make sense? And that's what today's verses deal with. So let's read verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And right now we submit our hearts to your word. We say together that we believe your word to be truth and absolute truth. We believe your word to be inerrant and infallible and authoritative. We believe your word to be living and active. And we confess together that our lives are not always aligned with your word. And yet, God, you are a teacher. Jesus, you said that the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would teach us concerning all things. And so, Holy Spirit, come and teach our hearts. Train our spirits to be consistent with your word. We want to think Bible. We want to have the mind of Christ in life situations. We want the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. We want to hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And so Holy Spirit, come and help us because we confess that we are an arrogant people, an often wayward people, a contrary people, a lazy people, and a stubborn people. We're asking that by grace you'd work in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. We want to be more like Jesus and less like us. And so Holy Spirit, come and do a wonderful work in us. We ask this together in Jesus' name, amen. Now, of course, remembering the context of persecution and times of difficulty and the strategy of the author of the book of Hebrews was to tell them about Jesus. Now, this is a great strategy, you know, because we're all going to have hard times in our lives, and we're all going to be looking for answers. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is the answer. If you make an appointment with one of the pastors here at church, and you come and talk about your drama, we're going to tell you about Jesus. That's what we're going to do. That's what we've been commissioned by the living God to do. We are just that naive and simple. We really believe that Jesus is the answer to all our individual dramas and the drama of the world. And so seeing that there was drama in the first century world of Rome, that persecution was being unleashed against Christians, and that they were wavering in their faith because it was difficult to follow Christ in that cultural context, the Holy Spirit-inspired strategy of the author is to tell them more about Jesus. And that's what he did from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10. 
He's just been telling them about Jesus, how Jesus is better. He's better than everything or anyone. And the protocol for the Christian in times of difficulty is to cling to Jesus. The reason the message has to be spoken is because we have a proclivity to let him go. In times of prosperity, we get comfortable. And what do we do? We drift. In times of difficulty, what do we often do? We turn to our own ingenuity things that are available to us, our own resources, our own know-how, our own American get-her-done ideal. (laughs) And in all seasons of life, we need to cling to Jesus. He really is the answer. And so he's been expounding to them Christology, Christology, the theology of the person of Jesus Christ. And now as we get in chapter 10, he's pushing them to apply what they know. We need to remember that as Christians. Sometimes we, the American church, have been guilty of knowing too much and doing too little. And so he's pushing them to do what they know, to take doctrine and to turn it into deeds, to put feet to their faith, to make application with the exhortation that's been given to them. And what he's teaching them in these verses is that the primary application of both the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of salvation is love. Hear that. The primary application of all that we know about Jesus Christ and this great salvation that we've been given is love. And the particular context of love being spoken of in verses 24 and 25 is the love that Christians have for one another fellowship, the fellowship of love. And don't you love that love? I love that love. That was so weak. Do you not love that love? I mean, the love that we have for one another, turn next to somebody and just touch them, just rub them, kiss them, hug them, something. Just give them a little pat. Just, oh, I love you. Tell them that you love them. In Christ, tell them that you love them. Say it. Say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Yeah, I love you guys. Don't you love that love? The love that we have because of Jesus Christ? We come from different backgrounds and different failures and different proclivities and different philosophies and different ideas and different races and tribes and nations, but then we come together and we're just brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, just brothers and sisters. And sometimes we fight like brothers and sisters, That's okay as long as we're loving like brothers and sisters and that we realize that we truly are a family, you and I. We are the children of God, having been born again by the Spirit of God, having been adopted by the Father God. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. And this love that we have for one another is precious. It is to be protected. It is to be cultivated. It is to be pursued. And it is to be practiced. Christians are to experience fellowship. The New Testament is clear. We're to have fellowship with one another. And the New Testament word for fellowship is neat. It's the word koinonia. You guys know it. Very common Greek word. You guys, it's the one Greek word you all know. Koinonia. And defined properly, it is the act of partaking, of sharing, of participating with and in one another. It is communion. It is a sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. 
A buzzword within Christianity today is community. That's the phraseology that the modern church likes to use is community. Now, I've got no problem with that word. It points us right back to the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. If you look up community in the Oxford American Dictionary, it's defined as a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. And I want to say this. Nobody has common attitudes, interests, and goals like you and I, like the children of God. Our attitude is Jesus Christ. Our interest, Jesus Christ. Our goal, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we're knit together in that, and so we have profound community. But beyond the Oxford American Dictionary definition, the New Testament presses it upon us in a heavier way. Really, the New Testament implies an intensely close relationship with one another beyond mere human camaraderie. Jesus did say that those who follow him would be distinct from the rest of the world by their love for one another. It would be distinct. It would be identifying. It would be identifiable. It would stand out and it would stick out the way that Christians loved and cared for one another. Now, if we're going to be honest, we failed in that many times throughout history and we fail in that in many ways currently. But that is the ideal. That is what Jesus said, that there should be something different. The relationships that we have inside the church with one another are to be an intensely close relationship with one another beyond mere human camaraderie. No matter what people say about the church, and they're saying a lot of things about the church right now, no matter what people say, they should say, yeah, this and that, and I don't like this, and I don't agree with that, and I'm not hip to that, but they sure do love each other. That needs to happen. And that's what this text is impressing upon us today. Because The Hebrews were in a societal context of rejection and persecution. Everybody was talking about the church and what they would do to the church and how they wished the church would just go away. And the protocol was for them to stand out all the more by their love for one another. That was to prevail in the day, their love for one another. Now, this koinonia, This communion, this love, this fellowship, this community for Christians is based on the nature of God. We understand in Christian theology, God to be a triune God, don't we? God is a trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be God? It means to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God has always been a triunity. Three who's, one what. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. Now, in the fact that God is a triunity, a trinity, he is a community by definition. He is in community and he is in loving community. And so the trinity is the basis then, the basis and the model and the genesis for Christian fellowship and community. Because God himself is a fellowship and a community, we, who are created in the image of God, have been designed to have fulfillment in community with God and with one another. We've been designed that way, patterned after God. 
made in the image of God, who is a triunity, a community. And so we have been designed by God to experience fulfillment in relationship with God and with one another. Jesus prayed that this would be a reality in our lives. Praying for the disciples, and you and I, he said in John 17, 21, speaking to the Father, he said, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see, the Trinitarian relationship then is analogous for our relationship. He said that they may be one, Father, even as we are one. The Father and the Son are inseparable. They are distinct to be sure. They're not commingled, but they are never torn apart. What does it mean to be God? To be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed that we might be one even as he and the Father are one. He continues and says that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice that the world may believe that you sent me. Our witness is wrapped up in our community. The way that we represent to the Lord to a large degree, its effectiveness is determined by the way we love one another, by the way that we are united with one another. He said, Father, they may, they may be one as we are one, that the world may know that you have sent me. And so I want to say, brothers and sisters, that we need to get this straight. We need to get this right. As Christians, we know that this is an ideal. We know that this is a precept. We know that this is truth. And as Christians, we have become good actors, generally speaking. And a lot of people in the church put on a great act of love, of acceptance, of koinonia. We need to stop acting, and we really need to start loving. We need the help of God for that. You see, in and of ourselves, we fall short. But Christianity never calls you to do anything in and of yourselves. It calls you to supernatural living, living that is empowered by the living God. And so we need the help of God. We need to call upon the Holy Spirit, whose job it is, according to Romans 5, 5, to pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts, that our lives would be so saturated with the love of God that it would flow forth from our lives to one another. I'm standing before you today as one who says, I need to work on it. I need to grow. I need to, by the grace of God and the power of God and the spirit of God and the love of God, get better at loving other Christians. There's too much of me. There's too much flesh. There's too much of my own arrogance, too much of my own pride, my own agenda, my own wants. I need to decrease that Jesus might increase. I need to humble myself that his love might flow through me. And so I stand before you as one young man, relatively young, who is working on it. And I say to the church that I'm a part of, we need to work on it. We need to get real mindful about it. We need to come together and be purposeful about loving realizing that Christianity was designed to be corporate and communal, lived out together. This is so important and so distinct to Christianity that a Lone Ranger Christian is an aberration. We all know them. We all know the people that say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. 
Now, that's, you, you can't say that. You can, in fact, 1 John says explicitly that you can't say that. Somebody says, I love God, but they hate their brother. 1 John says that they're a liar. And people that are saying, oh, I love Jesus Christ. I have an awesome relationship with Jesus Christ, but I don't want anything to do with his church. They're lying. They don't have an awesome relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible excludes that opinion, that attitude from being truth. It's common, isn't it? We hear it all the time, but it's not true. We need to confront that lie. We need to say to people, listen, God is a triunity. God is a community. We were made in God's image. We were patterned after the community of God to experience fulfillment in community with God and with one another. And when he started his church, he started it as a community. And his design is that we would live life together. A Lone Ranger Christian is an anomaly. An aberration has gone awry is going against God's design. It is God's heart that we would be knit together in fellowship. So the Trinity is the basis for Christian fellowship and community, and the Trinity is the basis for all Christian love and self-sacrifice. When we want to talk about what does it look like to love one another and to live lives of self-sacrifice, we can look at the Trinity. If we just look in the book of John, we see in John 3.16 that the Father gives His Son for the world. We see in John 6, 38, that the Son does not seek His own will, but the will of the Father. And we see in John 16, that the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. Here we see this immense concern within the triunity community for other. The Son submitted to the will of the Father. The Spirit seeking to glorify the Son and the Father. This is a pattern for Christian living the seeking of the good of one another to the expense even of ourselves. It costs the Father to give His Son. The Christian community then is to be based on the Trinitarian community. The giving for others' sake, the not seeking for our own, considering others is more important, self-sacrifice, continued intimacy, that's an attribute of the Trinity, continued intimacy, and common purpose. Trinity is united in the purpose of God to be glorified among the nations and in the universe. And so then the Christian community is based on that. Self-sacrifice, seeking of the good of others, continued intimacy, common purpose. Now, back to the text at hand, the writer here in the context is telling the Hebrew Christians that one of the best ways that they can hold fast to the things of God, hearkening to verse 23, this is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. He's telling them that the best way that they could hold fast to the things of God in a world that is contrary to God is to be in fellowship, to continue to assemble together. There is no better place to cultivate healthy, sincere, vibrant faith and to hold fast the truth of the Christian faith and to weather the hard times than in the community of faith, the church of Jesus Christ. We need a purpose in our hearts to stick together. I almost call this message, let's stay together, but it made me think too much of that one Al Green song, so I changed the, 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 the title. But we need a purpose in our hearts to stay together. And I think I mentioned this last week, but people come up with all sorts of strange ideas of why they should stop going to church. 
One of the main ones means someone disappointed them. Now, you just got to come to grips with the fact that in the church, people are going to disappoint you. Hello, there's people in the church. And anywhere where you find people, you find problems. That's just the way it is. And my goodness, under the headship of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, he has entrusted leadership to people. And so people under the authority and headship of Jesus Christ are called to lead in the church. They're not perfect people. Here's one right here. Six foot six of imperfection. And so the leaders in the church are going to make mistakes. They're going to have mood swings. They're going to have attitudes. They're going to make errors and omissions, just like you. And the people that sit next to you are just like you. They're jerks. (laughs) We're all like that. We need to realize that we're going to be hurt in the church and we're going to be hurt deeply because where you love deep, there's a possibility to be hurt deep. And there's a spiritual warfare that wages 24-7, 365 against the church and Satan does everything that he can to divide us. And where the church then fails in in that battle is when it divides. We need to choose to stick together even when things don't go our way, you little snotty brats. Like little kids who didn't get their way and so now they stomp off to their room is how so many Christians are. We need to realize I'm not always going to get my way. I'm not always going to be the center of attention. It's not always going to be about me. And people, by golly, are going to disappoint me. Now, if you know that beforehand, you'll be okay when it happens. It's going to happen. It's going to happen right here in this church. We're going to disappoint each other. But we need to choose to love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. We need to let love do that. It's interesting to note here that this text presses upon us not just what one can get from the assembly, and the assembly is a word used in verse 25, not what one can just get from the assembly, but what one can give. What someone can contribute to the assembling of the church together. There is this idea of reciprocity. It says in verse 24, or, yep, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds. There is this idea of reciprocity and contribution. Yes, we come to church and we know that we're going to receive, but that can't be the motive. The motive of the Christian is always to give. The motive of the Christian is always other. For God so loved the world that he gave. So God then, showing us what love means, becomes a giver to humanity. And so we need to pattern ourselves after God and say, I want to give. There needs to be this sense of contribution. That's how you need to come to the church, is I want to give. And so many people have extrapolated into the church their American consumeristic ideal, and it's detrimental inside the body of Christ. I understand that it's deep in the fiber of who we are as Americans to be consumers. But it doesn't work in vibrant, authentic 
Christianity. It simply doesn't work. The two ideals are contrary to one another. And so we need to surrender that consumer ideal of give me, I want, I need, must needs, got to have it now, take care of me, feed me, take me, buy me, show me, help me. (laughs) And we need to be willing to give. And what statistics show is that it's less than 10% of the church that has ever gotten that. It's less than 10% of you who serve on a regular basis. It's less than 10% of you that tithe on a regular basis. What the statistics show is that 90% of you are still consumers in your Christianity. 90% of you. There's a problem there now. You need to repent of that. You need to align your life with the Word of God, which is teaching us today that we could come to church with a concept of at least reciprocity and at best contribution. I'm coming to give, not merely to get. It says that we ought to consider how to do so. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That word consider is strong. It means to perceive or discern distinctly or clearly, to understand, to observe, to think about. Here it is, to put full attention on. We need to put our full attention on others. The idea is that we are to take careful note of each other's spiritual condition and then spur each other on toward being right. We need to take careful note. We need to put our minds to the task of taking thought for others. We need to remember that we are Christians not only for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of others. And we need to come to the assembly, church and church, with this mindset. And we need to do life with this mindset putting our full attention on others. We need to come to the assembly with that mindset. We need to do life with that mindset, putting our full attention on seeking after the welfare of others. Now, that word full attention or that phrase is potent because usually our full attention is on ourselves. Isn't that true? Usually, except for mamas with little babies. Mamas with little babies, about the only ones on earth who have very little thought for themselves. You can't. But for the rest of us, usually our full attention is on ourselves. And what we find is, with our consumeristic ideal, it's very easy to drift into selfish Christianity. But you see, selfish Christianity is a contradiction in terms. It doesn't work. In reality, there is no such thing as selfish Christianity. And yet we have a proclivity. Third time I've used that word in the sermon. That must be my new favorite word. We have a proclivity to drift into selfish Christianity. Therefore, we must be aware. We must stop and take stock this morning and say, am I a selfish man? Am I a selfish woman? 
Has consumerism, consumerism been woven too deep into the fiber of my being? Is it being extrapolated into my Christianity? Do I have a contradiction in identity here? We are to put our full attention on the well-being of one another, the passage says. It says, let us consider, let us put our full attention on how to stimulate one another toward loving good deeds. The King James Version uses the word provoke. That's good. I'm using the NASB. The King James says provoke. I like that. But I like the NIV and the New King James even more. It says spur one another on toward loving good deeds. That's a good word, spur, because we have a word picture for that, don't we? We got that little thing that hangs off the back of the cowboy boots that gets dug into the chest of the horse. That's a powerful picture for us. And this is a violent word. Throughout Greek literature and in the New Testament, it was usually used in the negative. It means to incite to stir up, it is a violent and powerful word, usually full of negative connotations that you're just spurring someone on towards something bad, but here it's positive, and yet it's strong. We're to provoke one another toward love and good deeds. We're to spur each other on. What does the cowboy do with the spur? When the horse doesn't respond right, he kicks him into the horse's ribs. That gets the horse to respond. Generally, we want Christians to respond right to the word of God and the spirit of God and the community of God. But when they don't, we need to kick them. <laughs> I mean, really, the word is that strong. They need to be spurred on toward loving good deeds. If they're not loving, if they're not doing the right things, they need a swift kick in the ribs. They need to be provoked. We need to be willing to get into one another's face. We have also extrapolated into our Christianity Victorian niceness. <laughs> Manifest in this vulgar and fake society as political correctness. We need to abandon that altogether in Christianity. We're a family. We need to be willing to get in each other's faces. And say, my brother, you're blowing it. My sister, you're blowing it. I'm not talking about condemnation. That's the job of Satan. Don't try to do his job. I'm talking about provocation. I'm talking about provoking, pushing, spurring on. A little swift kick. Now, the best way to do this, of course, is by example. That's the best way to do it, is to lead by example to live a life that is so surrendered to God, so powerful in the hands of God that others look and it's like a kick to them. Oswald Chambers spoke about this and said, it is a most disturbing thing to be smitten in the ribs by some provoker from God, by someone who is full of spiritual activity, someone who's just doing it right. We all know a Christian like that. You just hate them, don't you? They're just doing it right. They're not in the 90%. They're in the 10%. They are just doing it right, and their life is evidently blessed because of it. They're really following after Jesus Christ. They're really not driven by the whims of the flesh and the deceitfulness of the world. They're really yielded to the Spirit of God, and they're powerful in the hands of God. Not out to be a kick in your ribs to get you going to spur you on toward loving good deeds. It's called mutual accountability. It's called being part of the body of Christ. 
You see, we're knit together under the headship of Jesus Christ. And so if you're lagging, we're all lagging. If the foot is dragging, then the body is dragging. If the eye is shut and sleeping, then the body is sleeping. And so we need to kick each other in the ribs and wake each other up and say, hey, dude, it's the last days. Let's get right. Let's really live for Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I've attained to these things. I'm not preaching Britt Merrick. I'm preaching Jesus Christ and the word of God. Understand that I am with you. I am like you. If it wasn't for purpose of communication that you could see me better, I'd sit in the seats and we'd discuss this. I'm just like you. But we need to grow in this area. We need to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Realize the word love. It's the word agape. There's the other Greek word you know. It's the word agape. It is a self-sacrificial love that is based primarily upon decision and not feeling. That's important because the idea of love has been perverted in our society. We made it all about feelings and how you feel and getting your needs met. That's why the divorce rate is horrific in this world because it comes down to you and your needs and what you want and when you want it and how you get it. And if you're not getting it, then you feel different and you don't feel in love anymore, so you leave. And generations of kids are hurt by that. You see, the Christians are called to agape love. It's not based on feeling. It's not based on feeling. It's a decision. It's a decision that says, I will love because God is love. I will love with the love with which I have been loved. I will love with the love that the Holy Spirit provides by pouring the love of the Father into my heart. I will love with a supernatural love, and I will love the unlovable. Jesus said, what credit is, to, is it to you if you love those who love you? Big stinking deal, he said. Even the tax gatherers do that. But you see, Christians are called to love the unlovable. Well, who's the unlovable? You don't get a guy to get on a plane, man. Look at the seat next to you. Take a look in the mirror. That's us. You're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Well, look at the person in the seat next to you. Look at you. You won't even turn your head. Look at the person next to you. That's who we're talking about. Agape love is not based on feelings. Now, according to the Spirit of God, feelings may follow when you make that decision to love. They may follow. They may not. But it's not dictated by feelings. It's a decision to obey God. And the Holy Spirit always gives us power to obey. It's not an ideal that says, try to get to it in your own strength. That's old, dead, dumb religion. It's a living relationship where the Holy Spirit empowers you to attain to that. Agape love is not about self or self-preservation. It's about selfless giving. We're to spur one another on toward that. If somebody's lagging in that, you need to kick them in the ribs. And then we're to spur one another on toward good deeds. That is to say, doing the right thing in a very wrong world. Christians need to do the right thing in a very wrong world. Don't misunderstand the motivation, though. Don't misunderstand the motivation. The motivation is not simply to make a better world or to Christianize the world. The motivation is not simply justice. The motivation is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the motivation. 
And where Christians seek justice, it ought to be that we can communicate the gospel. Where Christians do humanitarian work, it ought to be where we can communicate the gospel. Where Christians do relief work, it ought to be building a bridge to communicate the gospel. Where Christians build orphanages, they had better intend on communicating the gospel. Our good deeds are based on the good deed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the goal, it is the glory, it is the motivation. And so then our good deeds, our actions are to testify of a good, kind, merciful, loving, and just God who saves according to the gospel. And downshifting a little bit, let me say this. True Christianity will always have good deeds. We're not saved by good deeds. Ephesians 2.8 says that. But we are saved for good deeds. Ephesians 2.10 says that. We're not saved by good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds. We better turn to James real quick. Let's go to James. James chapter 2. James is right after Hebrews. James chapter 2, talking about the fact that authentic Christian life, authentic Christian love, authentic Christian faith always expresses itself in good works. James 2, starting in verse 14, James writes and says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, or in the same way, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now hold on one minute. You need to examine your life this morning. Is there an outflow of the gospel in your life? Because the gospel is transformative in nature. Human beings are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a transformed life is going to be a different life. And a life that has yielded itself to the gospel, the person who has been born again, it's going to be evident in their life by good works. That's what the Bible says. You cannot escape that. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. That's a good one. Show me your faith without works. You don't do anything. You're not involved in the work of the kingdom. You're not involved in the work of the gospel. You're not doing anything by the spirit of God for the glory of God. Then show me your faith. You can't. Don't simply tell me what you believe. Look at the next verse. Verse 19 says, you believe that God is one. Look at me. You believe that God is one. That's right doctrine. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. 
fundamental from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. He is a triunity. He is a great three in one. That's good doctrine. Someone says, you don't have any good deeds in your life. Show me your faith. Well, I believe that God is one. That would have been the right Hebrew answer. James being a Hebrew Christian. Adonai Echad, one. One essence, one being in Hebrew. God is one. Okay, you got good doctrine. Look what the rest of the verse says. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's how you're going to tell me your faith, is that you know that God is one? You know a few facts about the Bible, a few facts about Christianity? You raise your hand somewhere? You show up at church? Is that how you're going to show me your faith? Hey, good for you. There's nothing different between you and a demon. What's the difference between you and a demon? Because demons know who Jesus Christ is. They said in the Gospels, you are the son of the living God. They know exactly who he is. They intellectually agree with the gospel. They know the cross was real and the resurrection was real. They know who the king is. They can say it. What makes you different than a demon? Well, demons don't do good deeds. Demons don't have gospel works in their life. Continuing on, verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, the careful theologians among you very uncomfortable with that statement. And so you should be, unless you understand it. Because Paul taught explicitly in the book of Romans, in Ephesians and elsewhere, that we are justified by faith alone. Amen? Amen. Sola fide. That is found fundamental to Christianity. We are justified, declared righteous in the Greek. Dikaiao. Declared righteous by faith alone. But that word in the Greek has a range of meanings. Paul used it in its declarative sense. You have been declared righteous. The verb can also mean to show oneself righteous, which is the way that James uses the verb here. In other words, he says, Abraham showed himself to be righteous when he went to go give his son Isaac. Remember, he was declared righteous when he believed in Genesis 15. He showed himself to be righteous when he obeyed in Genesis 21. So this is not a contradiction of righteousness by faith alone. Paul and James are talking about two different things using the same verb. One is to be declared righteous. One is to show oneself righteous. And Christians are to prove themselves, show themselves to be righteous, to have saving faith by the things that they do. And if there is no outflow of your faith and it's mere lip service, then you, my brother, you, my sister, might be in trouble today. Jesus taught explicitly that in the last day there will be tares among the wheat. Tares were a weed that grew in the wheat field that looked exactly like the wheat. 
and they had an, uh, an intensive root system so that they couldn't be pulled out. They looked just like the wheat and they couldn't be extricated until the harvest time came. And the only way that the farmer knew the tares from the wheat was that the wheat gave forth fruit and the tares didn't. And Jesus said, in the end, there will be a separation in the church because there's tares among the wheat. And what will be the defining factor? What will be the separation? The fruit. And Christian, there better be fruit in your life. I'm not telling you you better muster it up. I'm not telling you to increase your acting skills. I'm telling you to be authentically transformed by the gospel. And if you've truly yielded yourself to Jesus Christ as a wretched sinner and trusted in his perfect work upon the cross for your salvation, for your very life, then you will be transformed. There will be fruit in your life. But don't fool yourself. Some of you here have fooled yourselves. You intellectually agree with the right things, but you've never surrendered to the gospel. Don't be that person. Don't let anybody else be that person. Do gospel works. Live the gospel in your life. It is transformative and works flow out from it. Going back to our text now in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. It says finally, in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Not forsaking our own assembly together. Again, what people were doing in this day was they were bailing out on the Christian assembly because it was getting hard to be a Christian. It wasn't working out the way they thought it would, so people were leaving. And he's saying, don't leave. Stay knit together in the family. Now, it is true that you can, I guess, theoretically, be a Christian and not go to church. But it's also true, theoretically, that you can be married and not go home. But if you do that, you will have a bad relationship. God's design, God's will, is that Christians would assemble themselves together. Any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is foreign to the New Testament. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. It says that we are to be assembling ourselves together. Now, I'm going to end right here, but can you give me a few more minutes? I know what I did on you. I don't like to do this as a preacher. I shifted gears real big 45 minutes into it. And I saw you people right here glance up at the clock and go, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. How much longer is he going to go? Boy, he built it to a crescendo and he had us nailed. Should have had Dominic and the worship team come up right then. But you see, I only did verse 24. Are you going to let me do verse 25? I mean, you're going to get it one way or another. I'll do it next week. A few more minutes in you still? You need to take a little breath? You need to stretch it out? I know this isn't good preaching, but this is what I'm doing. You need to stretch it out? Okay, here we go. This word, you're very kind. This word for assembling together is very special. It's only used two times, this word assembling, in the New Testament. The word is episunogoge. Episunogoge. That's the other Greek word you know, isn't it? <laughs> episunogoge. <laughs> Okay, it means to be gathered together 
to a place or person. Gathered together to a place or a person. Here's a nugget. When we assemble, when we come together, we are assembling to Jesus Christ. That is the goal. That is the focus. That is what so much of the church has lost. They've made it a social club. They've made it all sorts of things. But the Bible says when we assemble, we are assembling to and around the person of Jesus Christ. That is what fellowship is. His people assembled around him. We call fellowship Christians going to see movies together. Hey, let's fellowship by going to the movies. I got nothing wrong with you going to the movies, but that ain't fellowship. (laughs) Fellowship is God's people rallied around God. It's them rallied to and around and for the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what church is to be. The assembly, the coming together is to be around the person of Jesus Christ. We need a touch of the supernatural. We need to remember that the New Testament says that Christ is present in the assembled church. That's what the book of Revelation is speaking about when it says in 2.1, the one, capital O, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the stars being leaders in the church, the lampstands being the church. The book of Revelation says that Jesus walks among the churches and that when we assemble, he is here. And so Christians, you need to prepare yourself before you come into church. You need to come in with the heart and the head and the mindset. We are assembling around Jesus. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to be with Jesus to give honor and glory and praise to Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus. Church has got to change its mind. We come in for all sorts of reasons. We got to change our mind and say it's about Jesus. Explicitly, the text says when we assemble, it is to Jesus. When we assemble, we're assembling into the glory of God because Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And when we get together, we become radioactive we get contaminated with the glory of God. And when we stay together, we stay contaminated. We need to share that germ, you see? You see, we stick together here. Nobody goes into quarantine. We hang together because Jesus Christ is the radiance of God, and we need to get radiated. We need to get radioactive. And if we stay together, we'll just keep exchanging that glory. We'll just keep that glory happening. You see, Christians are like coals in a fire. They stay hot when they stay together. You take one out, you set it aside, and it's going to extinguish. We need to stay together. We need to stay hot. And it says that we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I said that that word for assembling was used one more time. It's used in the Bible to speak of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's the only other time it's used. It's used in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, where it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Episunagoge. Being gathered to him. Same word. And so when we gather together now as a church, it is a foreshadowing of when he will gather us 
when he comes at the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians says it this way. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And verse 18 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Now, here's my final point, and it's a quickie. (laughs) Comfort one another with these words. We are to comfort one another by talking about, looking for the coming of the Lord. Because when he comes, we'll be gathered together to him. And if you're born again, that's good news for you. That's comforting to you. If that doesn't excite you, you better check your salvation. For real. If it doesn't excite you that Jesus Christ is coming for you, you better check yourself. You were to comfort one another in times of difficulty. I mean, really, we could look at each other and say, I know, I know, I know. But the Lord is coming, brother. Hold on. And the Christian heart's supposed to go, yeah, okay. Woo-hoo-hoo. The Lord is coming. We're to draw encouragement from that. And so the assembling right now is a foreshadow of the gathering then. We're to encourage one another toward that gathering. And we're to encourage one another in this gathering. The word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage, or it says rather, comfort one another with these words. It's the same Greek word used in Hebrews 10.25 where it says, encourage one another. The word is parakaleo. You're familiar with the noun form of that verb, parakletos, Holy Spirit. In the book of John, the noun parakletos is used by Jesus to speak of the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? The one who comes alongside and who helps. What does the Bible say we're to do with one another? Parakaleo, the verb form. Come alongside one another and help each other. Encourage one another. And all the more as the day draws near, the day being that day where we are ultimately gathered together. We need to encourage one another because the Bible teaches that times in this world will get more and more difficult before the coming of the Lord. And so encourage each other day by day, all the more as you see the day of approaching. Put your mind to it. Think about it. Consider how to do it and do it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this encouragement, Lord. Thank you for this kick in the ribs. We need it. We need it, Lord, because we're a selfish people. We ask that Jesus, you would just come now and Be the center of our gathering. Take your rightful place, Lord. I don't know why we all came here this morning, but I know why it ought to be now, to rally around you. So, Lord, we say together that you have our hearts. We say together that you are the reason. You are the center. And, Jesus, we seek your glory. And we ask now that by the power of the gospel, you'd come and work transformation in our lives. For me, many of these things that we've studied this morning have been personally challenging. So I need your help to be transformed, Lord. We need your help. Come and work transformation in us. If you need help this morning, prayer team is up here. Or just come straight to the Lord and get on your face. He's a transforming God. Let's press into him.